Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week, I speak with citizen changemakers who spark civic engagement in our society. Our guest today is James Nickman. He's a health economist serving as the director of the Health and Analytics Lab, which is a joint initiative on health policy and management and population health at NYU. With the spirited presidential candidates' debates on healthcare in the back of my mind, I've been wanting to learn more about basic questions such as how we can optimize our resources for the good of the public and what are the hallmark signs of a healthy population. The problem in, in health economics for a long time was that when we looked at this question, we were focusing on how do we deliver and receive medical care effectively. But the real question I think economists and everybody else in the health field is beginning to realize now is that's not the focus, medical care. The focus is health. How do we get more health? That's what we're buying or spending resources on is health. And that leads to beginning to think about the efficiency of investments in education and income and social services. At the same time, you're thinking about the investments in medical care. You know, so I think that's sort of the changing perspective uh, in, in the field. We'll be talking about how we can deliver good health outcomes, what that means for the rich and the poor, the role of sound public health policies, and what the future might hold for our health. Let's listen in. Thank you for joining us. Welcome. It's nice to be here. So let's start with the basics. What is population health? Population health is about the idea of thinking about a group of people as a whole and saying, how do I go about keeping that group of people healthy? And interestingly, you say, well, that sounds obvious. But in medical care, uh, most medical care providers think in terms of the people who come to them for service. And that perspective leaves out lots of people who are not coming for service. Um, and the second thing is it, it leads to this sense of it's all about medical care. And so this sort of movement towards thinking in terms of population health is to have a wider perspective on how you think about everybody and keeping them healthy. So how does that differ from public health? Public health is a series of interventions often done by some government agency, a department of public health in a city or state, and they deliver services that help people generally, like making sure water's clean, making sure restaurants uh, are clean, uh, trying to make sure vaccinations uh, you know, are given. So they're, they're still about services, but they focus on prevention often, and they do have a bit more of a community perspective. The distinction, of course, is that they don't necessarily think about the effect of housing on your health and well-being, the effect of jobs or the effects of bicycles and good food on your health and well-being. Some of them do, and they're increasingly doing it, sort of pulled there by this population health movement. But there's that broader perspective. Right. That was going to be my next question. What are social determinants? Because that mm -hmm. is definitely a big part of health. And I think people don't put those things together when they think mm -hmm. about health care and population health and or public health. Basically, we know there are four or five things that affect your health and well-being. First, there's your genes, you know, but it turns out that that probably affects about 10% of how healthy you are. And then there's healthy behavior, eating well, exercising, uh, avoiding drugs and cigarettes, things like that. That probably accounts for about 15% of who is healthy and not healthy. Then there's medical care, which everybody thinks is the thing. It only accounts for about 20% of people's health and well-being and longevity. 55% of 
what determines your health status and your longevity are these social determinants, these other things, how our society works, what is our place in that society. So it's a series of things that start with how early development happens for you as a baby. Those first couple of years of life have a big effect on how well you do over your course of life. Uh, how much income you make is probably the key driver. You want to make people healthy, give them some money. <laughs> and and that's partly because income allows you to do a lot of things that keep you healthy. It also releases a lot of tension. I mean, who's going to think about exercising and eating healthy food if you have very low income and you have lots of issues living that way? And then it's things like having a job, just being connected. Social isolation for elderly is a big social determinant of health. Jobs are a sense of not being socially isolated during your working age. Education level, the more you're educated, it seems like the more you're healthy. And then factors like discrimination and how you're treated as an individual all are important. And then finally, there's the basics, the prevention activities, you know, brushing your teeth and uh, having safe sex and getting your flu shots. And underlaying all that is public policy. <laughs> and if, if we have smart public policy that helps facilitate and enable better healthy living, that's a big social determinant. Maybe you have one or two examples, really strong public policies that help us think about health in a way that really supports population health. Mm-hmm at large, but also translates to people every day to understand, okay, this is actually really good for me. This is something that's important that I should do. Well, it's funny because a lot of times good public policy in terms of improving health is almost invisible from a health point of view. You don't think about it in those terms. But I'd say a program like the earned income tax credits, uh, where uh, we actually redistribute income to people who work but have low income so that they have a living wage that is, is helped along by the government, that probably is the single most important program to improving health among low-income Americans. But you'd never think of it as a health program, but in fact it is. Same thing with housing, supportive housing housing, that's sort of something that government can make happen. And it turns out that that's very important for good health. Increasingly, governments are trying to make sure the parks work, to make sure bicycles work, uh, trying to avoid food deserts. What is a food desert? Now, a food desert is the idea that you live in a neighborhood where you cannot get healthy food where maybe there's no place within 10 blocks where you can buy fresh fruit or vegetables or a place that is a real grocery store. And not having access can really affect your health and nutrition and well-being. So there's a lot of small things that government can do also, but the big things are about improving education, improving wealth distribution, and making sure young children have a good start in life. So in your mind, what is the hallmark sign of a healthy population? Well, I think the hallmark of a healthy population um, is, that's a tough question. It's living in a world where you have a chance of making good decisions about your health uh, and you have the resources uh, to do so. A, a connection to your community, being connected through a job or church or friends or whatever is all part of it. And you know, take something like people with severe mental illness. They're often just left aside. And in some ways, it's working on the people with the biggest health problems 
that is probably most important to improve population health. It's the 5 or 10% of people with serious chronic illnesses, serious conditions that need the chance to lead a healthy life. This leads me directly to sort of what you're concerned about as a health mm-hmm. economist in terms of how are we spending our money, how are we spending mm-hmm. our resources? Are we doing that in an, a wise and efficient way to fold in the people who have a great medical need mm-hmm. and improving social determinants? Mm-hmm. And what's the trade-off? Okay. You know, it's interesting. Economists really worry about efficiency and making sure we're making good choices in how to use resources. If you are an economist studying the automobile industry, you want to make sure the market works. You want to make sure there's different options, that prices are fair and and, uh, determined by competition, and that quality is good. Well, in healthcare, it's, it's pretty complicated. First of all, you don't have a world necessarily where people are paying for something when they get it. The government con- contributes a lot of resources. Employers cover a lot of resources through insurance. And then people spend money partly to pay for their insurance and partly for out-of-pocket. I think as an economist, you, you want to say to yourself, are we allocating the resources and getting good services for our dollar, if you will? The problem in, in health economics for a long time was that when we looked at this question, we were focusing on how do we deliver and receive medical care effectively. But the real question I think economists and everybody else in the health field is beginning to realize now is that's not the focus, medical care. The focus is health. How do we get more health? That's what we're buying or spending resources on is health. And that leads to beginning to think about the efficiency of investments in education and income and social services. At the same time, you're thinking about the investments in medical care. You know, so I think that's sort of the changing perspective uh, in, in the field. I think that makes a lot of sense, and it might explain a lot of the disparities that we see when it comes to societies in Europe that have more broadly accessible social determinants mm-hmm. in terms of child care or good education at an early age. You know, In Germany, they have child money. If you have a child, you get money from the government so that at least everybody will have a minimum amount of money they can feed their children and the free education is very high quality and is very accessible. Right. There's some really good research out there, some which was done collaboratively with my colleagues at NYU and some folks at Yale that really looked at how much a country spends on social Uh, services and medical care services. And we always sort of complain to ourselves in America that we spend so much more than Europe on medical care. But it turns out that Europe spends much more on social services than we do. And if you look at the combination of social spending and medical care spending in Europe and the combination in America, it's almost the same per capita. We've taken the route of putting all our money into the medical care bucket, and Europe has gone the other direction. And um, we both, in the end, spend about the same on these two things combined. Europe has longer life expectancy, uh, you know, better health statistics than we do. So you begin to wonder whether we're making the right choices there. Well, one of the things that you pointed out to me separately was about the 
income disparities mm-hmm. and how they relate to life expectancy. Can you talk a little bit more about yeah, that? Yeah, and this is, this is something that I've been thinking a lot about lately. We know we live in a world where there's a lot of disparities of income across uh, the society. And that, well, it turns out that those disparities also exist in life expectancy. If you look at people in the top 20% of the wealth side, they live 11 years longer than people in the bottom 20%, 11 full years of, of life. That's a big disparity. Even the top 20% compared to the median is 86-year life expectancy versus 82. That is at age 50 when you're looking forward. That's a pretty big span too. And so the big question is, are we willing to live with those life expectancy disparities the same way we've been living with the wealth disparities? And the other issue that I'm concerned about is that looking forward into the future, I think there are lots of medical care interventions that are on the horizon that could expand life expectancy a great deal if you can get them. And the question will be, will they be covered by insurance or not? Or will it lead to if you're wealthy, you get them, and if you're not wealthy, you don't get them, gene tweaking and uh, all these things that you read about? I don't know what their answer is, but I worry about if this life expectancy disparity goes from 86 versus 75, 11 years, to 105 versus 78 years, that might cause tension in our social structure. Yeah, definitely that will cause tension in our social structure. When you think about gene therapy Mm -hmm. to prevent, let's say, having cancer or to enable us to live longer lives, healthier, longer lives... Do you think about it as a preventive um, Mm -hmm. measure, or do you think about it maybe the way that we think about plastic surgery, which is Mm -hmm. cosmetic? So that's that's the big unknown. The high-tech things we're talking about with the literature are definitely preventive in, in nature. We can't do this yet. But if we have this gene tweaked, it lowers your chance of getting cancer from 30% to 10%, or it lowers your, your chance of a heart attack from 40% to 10%. Most health insurance pays to restore your health. It pays for medical care when you are sick. It spends very little on prevention. And so I think some of these technologies could be seen as medical care and might be covered, and others probably won't be. But the more important issue here is, even if we did want to cover them, if these things are incredibly expensive, is this the right thing for our society to be focusing resources on? We spend $3.5 trillion on medical care. If we have another trillion to spend, do we want to throw it at these high technology stuff, or do we want to throw it at helping people lead healthier lives? There's a big debate, and there's a lot of research going on to say, well, which does have the higher return? It very might well be that redistributing income a bit, improving your access to education, early childhood stuff, has a longer payoff than this gene tweaking could have. So these are tough choices that we have to make as a society. And one last point is, if you have $10 million in the bank, it makes sense to spend $200,000 on gene tweaking. But if you're making $40,000 a year and you have nothing in the bank, that's not necessarily what you want society to invest in to improve your life. So you get this disparity of what's good for me. Wealthy people might have one thing that's good for them and lower income people might have another thing that's good for them. But I get very confused about how you make those moral, ethical trade-offs. Yeah, it's not straightforward. If you think about population health in the future, what are good goals for us? And how does that then tie in with what we just discussed? Mm -hmm. I think good goals are to 
are, first of all, to think in terms of communities and to say, let's make sure every community has a set of actors who are concerned about the health and well-being of that whole community. So let's have a community where we have some anchor institutions like large health systems, like employer groups, like government, like community organizers that can get together and say, as a group, how are we going to think about making our fellow citizens healthy in a whole way? And there's a lot of movement out there to push this. The foundation I I used to head are supporting like six or eight communities around New York State as pilots to do this type of thing. Robert Wood Johnson Foundation is working a lot on this issue, other foundations around the country. So there's a lot of efforts to think in terms of activating anchor organizations and community forces to really start addressing population health and the needs of everybody. Okay. What do these pilot programs do? Well, what they do is make resources available for leaders of this. I mean, so you need somebody to be the organizer. And there's a whole set of funding for organizations that can do technical assistance and call them playbooks, what you have to do to get your community organized to address uh, some of these population health issues. Just try and make activity happen at the city level. If that's the goal, to have healthy communities and start Mm -hmm. sort of there, I'm leaning towards spending more money on improving social determinants as opposed to high pollutant technology. Having said that, maybe the technology is very similar to something like vaccines, which is a preventive care Mm -hmm. that is covered by insurance, is widely available, and all of us are expected to to receive vaccines. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting. There is public policy, again, that comes in here. In the past, we've paid big health systems, you know, like the one I work at. (laughs) We've paid them by fee-for-service. Increasingly, public policy, I think, is moving in a direction where it's going to make more bundled payments, where it says, take care of this person and we will pay you this amount, or take care of this problem in a broader sense. So if you have diabetes, they're not necessarily going to pay for every service. They're going to say, you're going to get this much money per month to take care of this person with diabetes. If you move in that direction, the health system all of a sudden has a incentive to use preventive interventions because they'd be better off keeping that diabetic healthy and not slipping into really serious diabetes. So I think that there is some possibilities there of changing the economic incentives to make it in the interest of health systems to play more leadership roles in this area. So, well, as an economist, what is your pet peeve in terms of how we spend our resources when it comes to health? What is it that you wish you could tell people to stop doing or to debunk something the way that we think about or conceive of health and medical care? I guess I'd say the big challenge is the importance of interest groups and the importance of people who are doing really well conflicting with perhaps what we need to do. There's a lot of companies, pharmaceutical companies, others, that make a lot of money. And that makes it very hard, I think, to make the right choices. It's very hard in America, once somebody's making a lot of money, to change that pattern. To me, it's it's a dilemma. What we need are, are better market forces, you know, better systems of making sure we're spending money in the right way. But a lot of those choices would hurt some people physicians, pharmaceutical companies, and 
the politics of that get in the way of the economics of that. Definitely that's true, that of course the pharmaceutical interests are deep and very difficult to dislodge uh, in favor of, let's say, social determinant intervention, right? Mm -hmm. As opposed to saying, okay, well, we want you to be on this super expensive drug every day, as opposed to saying you need to change, you know, your health habits at home and you can prevent having heart disease or whatever it is. Right. I, I think, by the way, that um, we need better evidence about what works on the social service side and the prevention side also. I mean, pharmaceutical companies have these big expensive studies they do that show, oh, this drug will increase life by three months or something. But at least they have evidence. And uh, we need comparable evidence for some of these uh, social determinants interventions. We definitely do. It's difficult when you're not doing them, though. How are you going to find the evidence? Like, do you have good evidence coming out of Europe? A lot of it is correlational evidence. The places that spend more have better outcomes, but you don't know whether what's causing what. My research center does a lot of stuff looking at specific social service initiatives and how it affects Medicaid expenditures, how it affects outcomes among low-income people. And we find a fair number of them have good return on investments, if you will. So I think there are ways of studying them. And with more and more big data out there and more analytics ability, uh, I think there's a lot of hope of improving our evidence base. Okay, tell us about one of those studies where it was encouraging. Oh, my favorite one is an organization called Fountain House. It uh, has a clubhouse model where it takes care of people who are severely mentally ill, and it gives them a place to go to during the day. When people go there, they get some counseling, they get some support, learn uh, job skills, and they're not socially isolated. And uh, these folks came to me a number of years ago and said, we think we're really saving Medicaid money. We don't get funding from Medicaid. Could you look at, at whether or not it, it's in fact true? And so we designed a study using this big Medicaid claims database. And it turned out when you looked at people who use this Fountain House service, Services, and you looked at them before they used it and after they used it, and then you compared them to a very similar match comparison group, it was saving Medicaid like $20,000 a year for people who went through this program. And they were getting no support from Medicaid. We're working our way towards uh, an initiative where insurance companies are going to pay for that service. And, and so that's sort of the type of thing that I think you're going to see more and more of. That's tremendous. Yeah, Thank cool. you for sharing that. So you're clearly super passionate and you're so fluid on all the issues. What is the source of your passion? When I started out my career, I was interested in poverty and, and sort of income distribution. But then I wandered into healthcare. But one thing I recognized halfway through my career is that they're the same problem. Poverty and healthcare outcomes are so interrelated. And so I feel the passion of saying, a lot of our social challenges as a nation are interconnected, and I think we have to address them in an interconnected way. If I wanted to get engaged here in this field, what are two things I could be doing? I think that there are lots of, of opportunities to either donate or spend time at places like food banks, at places where you enrich the lives of children, at places that deliver social services that are addressing the needs of people with mental illness or developmental disabilities. There's a lot of volunteer opportunities, I think, to help uh, people as they age. Social determinants are really important for how well people do as they age uh, and being connected to people who drive them around or visit them is all positive things that can really make a tangible difference. Last question. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? 
oh, well, I think America's a great country. We solve our problems in the long run. And I think that healthcare, by the way, made a lot of strides in the last 10 or 15 years. There's a lot more attention to these issues that I'm uh, talking about. We've actually moderated the uncontrolled growth of healthcare costs in the last five or 10 years. It's, I mean, it's not cheap and it's not, it's still inflating, but nowhere near the way it was 10, 20 years ago. So I think there has been progress. And I think there's progress on public policy on thinking about paying for care in different ways. So I'm optimistic, you know, it's never going to be perfect, uh, but, uh, and it's not terrible. And, um, uh, I am hopeful that it'll keep improving and that we'll have a little bit more equity in terms of how well we do in terms of different populations. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Thank you for your time. You're welcome. We've heard so much now and for so long that Europeans have better health statistics despite spending less on medical care that I was truly surprised to learn that European countries and the United States spend about the same on social determinants and healthcare per capita combined. I am super excited that American health economists are now thinking more broadly about how we can achieve good health outcomes in a population instead of focusing on health insurance and access to medical care. I am naturally intrigued by the question of what would be a better long-term return on investment for our health whether it's additional dollars on future advances of medical treatments or whether it's more spending on things like early childhood learning and income redistribution. It may be that future discoveries will indeed make medical care the definitive edge for better health outcomes. Although for now it's pretty clear that if you want to make people healthy, you need to give them some money. Next week, our guest is Liz Willen. She's the editor-in-chief of the Heckinger Report, an independent, nonprofit, and award-winning newsroom that covers inequality and innovation in education. We'll be talking about the inequality crisis in who's attending college and why we need to make higher education more widely accessible to all Americans. Fewer than 1% of children from the bottom fifth income level of American families attend elite colleges. Black adults are only two-thirds as likely to hold college degrees as whites, while Latinos, the fastest growing and largest ethnic minority in the U.S., are only half as likely. That's recent data from the Education Trust. Education is supposed to be the great equalizer in our society. And if we're sorting out the poor, the black, the Latino, the people who can't afford it at such an early age and only funneling the wealthiest into the most elite schools, that has great implications for boardrooms, for law firms, for medical schools, for all ranges of society in years to come. Until next time, I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Tsumbu. Find us online at futurehindsight.com and listen to us through your favorite streaming services. Mm-hmm.